Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, we feature Terry Rivas Plata, an expert consultant with ICF. Terry has 40 years of experience in land use planning and CEQA analysis. At ICF, a full-service CEQA and NEPA consulting firm, Terry has prepared NEPA and CEQA documents for projects ranging in size and complexity from school expansions to California's high-speed rail project. He currently provides strategic advice to project staff and clients on NEPA and CEQA compliance. Terry is a popular instructor for the UC Davis Continuing and Professional Education Program, teaching several courses on NEPA and CEQA. He writes the AEP Environmental Assessor that summarizes current CEQA case law, and he is co-author of the CEQA tutorial, Practical CEQA. We hope you enjoy hearing from Terry. Hi, I'm Jessa. And I'm Laurel. And today's guest is Terry, who many of you know. Terry, hello. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're very excited to have you because you're a staple in our industry. You you know your stuff. You know your CEQA stuff. And to that end, for those of you that haven't, uh, our listeners that haven't been in the industry for 40 years, um, Terry, tell us how you got into the environmental profession and why. Oh, wait, no, wait, first, tell us how you're connected to AEP. Like, oh, okay. What first has been your experience first. with AEP? Yeah, well, I've been an AEP member for, uh, I guess, at least a couple or three decades, uh, dating back to my time at the uh, Office of Planning and Research. Uh, and I'm connected to AEP in, a, I guess, three different ways. One is that I'm the editor of the Environmental Assessor, so the little newsletter that you get every so often talking about uh, case law, in uh, CEQA and having summaries of all the cases that have come down over a particular quarter. Uh, I do that. Uh, I'm also uh, on the CEQA legislative review team. So I'm on the AEP's legislative review team where we review all of the legislation that's coming through uh, with our excellent lobbyist, uh, Matt Kloppenstein. And then also uh, I help out on the CEQA workshops. I'm not always presenting a workshop, but I kind of work with Gary Jacobs in the background uh, and put in my two bits anyway, as to things that I think might be in the workshop and sometimes put together slides and that kind of stuff. Yes, lots of involvement at the leadership level because you know your stuff. And there'll be times when I'm in board meetings and something will come up and we'll be like, ask Terry. <laughs> or we'll be in SQL workshops and it's like, Terry prepared the curriculum, ask Terry. So you are a, you're a wealth of knowledge. You've been in the industry for 40 years. Um, you work through ICF, which is a full right. service, yeah, so for, so full service planning firm. Tell me how, uh, what you do at ICF and how you got there. Right. Well, I'm kind of semi-retired. So uh, primarily I do what I want to do. I get to choose, pick and choose the sorts of projects that I work on to a certain extent. Um, I used to do project management, so I was hands-on with you know, writing environmental impact reports and negative declarations and that sort of thing. Uh, but now my... Uh, my role is more along the lines of a CEQA advisor. So I offer uh, technical advice for, to our staff uh, all around the state on complying with CEQA. Um, I find myself writing CEQA findings for environmental impact reports, that sort of thing. Uh, I also get called in during the preparation of an environmental document where we may have a client that has concerns about CEQA and uh, we need somebody to give them some technical advice as to how it might go. So uh, those are kind of the three things that I do now. Uh, as well as uh, backpacking and what I call urban hiking. I go out for a, an urban hike every day 
Uh, I'm fortunate to live in a portion of Sacramento where we have access to uh, trails. I'm not on the American River Trail, which is the famous trail, uh, but they're kind of uh, hidden trails here and there around my part of Sacramento that I take uh, hopefully every day. Yeah, so that's what well, I, I will do. I will also comment that urban hikes are a thing. I definitely do those too. And this morning on my urban hike, doesn't sound so urban, but I saw a burrowing owl. There we go. Yep peek out of its little hole and like look around and it was like get away from me get away from me <laughs> but it was very halloweeny and uh festive Loved oh yeah it. yeah they are very halloween let them let them in place right because they're endangered species but yeah, yeah. It was, when you see them it's such a treat especially being in an urban environment right yeah i do i was going to say i love urban hiking and i'm in san diego and there's a system around here it's like the seven bridges hike and so it's like right in the middle of the city but I'm a big fan of urban hiking instead of just, you know, walking. <laughs> right. And Terry, how did you get, I'm so curious because, it, you know, with all this experience with CEQA and being such an expert and the go-to and having to work with it so long, like, how did you get started? You know, was this a linear path for you? Is this what you studied in school and then got into it? Like, what, how did you get into the industry? Uh, let's see, kind of. Uh, it was kind of a linear path, but not, not really. There was a lot of luck involved. Um, I went to UC Davis, I, so I have a, a bachelor's degree in environmental planning and management. It now has a different name, but that was the major at the time. Uh, so I was, you know, kind of wanted to get into the environmental field. Didn't really have an idea of what I wanted to do other than I would like to get into environmental planning. Uh, after graduating, I ended up doing construction for about a year because I couldn't find a job. It was in the late 70s and we were in one of our, you know, recessions that we have uh, every decade or so. Um, and so I couldn't find a job uh, in the Bay Area where I'm from. Uh, ended up finding a job in Bakersfield. And so I moved from the Bay Area to Bakersfield, uh, where I lived for seven years working for the Kern County Planning Department uh, in various, um, I don't know, various levels of their planning department. So I started off as a junior planner, worked up to an associate planner uh, before I left, but got a, a huge experience in all kinds of land use planning, whether it was subdivisions, uh, whether it was uh, conditional use permits for all kinds of weird projects. Kern County was one of the first areas in the state where there were wind power projects. So I worked on some of the early wind power projects in the Tehachapi area. Uh, we also had, well, they still have uh, a, a very busy uh, oil and gas industry. And so I worked on some projects relating to oil and gas. Uh, I drafted an ordinance while I was there, although it ended up getting <laughs> gutted and changed completely from what I wrote, but I wrote an ordinance uh, I worked on general plan updates. I worked on uh, specific plans. I helped write some specific plans in Kern County. So I got this huge experience there. Uh, and Kern County is kind of unusual because it has very rural areas. Uh, it has mountainous areas, desert areas, as well as urban areas that are under the jurisdiction of the county. So I kind of got, you know, got, uh, uh, in, got used to doing projects practically anywhere, you know, all of these different areas. Uh, from there, I went to the Office of Planning and Research, the Governor's Office of Planning and Research under Governor Duke Majin, and I got into there just by luck. Uh, it turned out that a fellow who was working there uh, knew someone who was working at Kern County uh, and suggested they apply for the job that had opened up as a planner in the Office of Planning and Research. That person didn't want the job. They thought they had a better chance of advancing in Kern County um, than at Office of Planning and Research, because those jobs are political appointees and uh, they can hire and fire you as as the governor wishes um and so he said well you know terry there's this job available in sacramento and he, i guess he got maybe to the mento and i was already out the door uh, because i wanted to leave kern county for a long time 
Um, well, I wasn't an area that I was was used to. I wanted to be closer to my family in the Bay Area. Uh, and so Sacramento sounded good. So I worked for Governor Duke Majin for several years. I worked for Governor Wilson uh, throughout both of his terms, uh, and then for about a month under Governor Davis uh, at the Office of Planning and Research, doing all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, we worked on a lot of policy stuff uh, relating to growth management back in the Wilson years, uh, a lot of CEQA stuff. Uh, I kind of started the idea of having um, CEQA technical advisories that Office of Planning and Research or State Clearinghouse would put out um stuff on general plans i helped write several versions of the general plan guidelines i helped out uh drafting the CEQA guidelines back in the 1980s uh so just a whole pile of different stuff uh one of the really interesting things that i got to do is i got to sit at the big boys table once in a while or the parents table uh every so often because i i had expertise in CEQA at both the local level and now at the state uh i would get called over to the capital i get to meet with uh, I don't know, director of fish and, fish and wildlife, um, resources agency director, all these people who were much higher level than me. Um, and we would have policy discussions over, you know, the direction of California policy on particular things. Uh, everything from uh, the Bay, what was then the Bay Delta Accords that they were working on um, to more mundane things. And so that was pretty good. Um, That's really, really cool, Terry. Like what, what do you think is one of the coolest projects that you worked on there? Uh, let's see. Well, <laughs> it was one that didn't really go anywhere because of, again, another recession. Um, and it was the uh, growth management work that I did uh, there at the Office of Planning and Research at the beginning of uh, Governor Wilson's term. Uh, and so when Governor Wilson came in, he'd been a state senator. Uh, he had a whole bunch of people who were on his uh, really smart, bright young people who were on his staff in uh, both San Diego and other offices here in California and offices in Washington that he brought in. Uh, and because he'd also been the mayor of San, of San Diego at one time, uh, and San Diego during his tenure had been a leader in growth management uh, or attempting to manage their growth, uh, such as it was back in those days, um, <laughs> he thought, well, you know, we ought to do the same thing for the state. And so we began working on this growth management stuff. I put together a whole pile of uh, white papers and um, tried to lead uh, a group on CEQA and what CEQA reform might look like uh, to, uh, you know, kind of dovetail with this idea of growth management uh, and also CEQA streamlining. Uh, but it didn't go anywhere because once again, there was a recession. And once the recession hit, well, who, was, who cared about growth management? Now we want to grow. We don't want to stop growth <laughs> or manage growth or, you know, try and direct growth in particular areas. Um, so it didn't really go anywhere. But the thing that really interested me about it was that uh, I realized that Jerry Brown's project of the 1970s, where they put, I forgot what it's called, the, um, it was basically an urban policy that the Office of Planning and Research had put out back in the 70s under the first Jerry Brown administration, was very prescient. I mean, it really laid out everything that was going to happen to the state, and it did happen to the state uh, in the 1990s. Uh, and so, I came to realize that if California wanted or had wanted to do growth management, we really needed to have done it back then in the in the Jerry Brown era, because by the 1990s it was it was too late. Because uh, yes, <laughs> so oftentimes it happens when we're doing our our good work here in the environmental industry. We're like, oof, should have started that 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Oof, should have started that 15, 20 years ago. Did you, you mentioned CEQA streamlining. Did you work on any categorical exemptions, proposing them, writing them, creating them? Uh, yes and no. Yeah, I worked on uh, 
all the categorical exemption changes that came out of uh, the, uh, I guess it was 1998 revisions to the CEQA guidelines. So the uh, urban infill exemption, I worked on that one. Uh, there was an exemption relating to uh, historic properties, uh, clarifying that if you were actually um, following the federal guidelines for treatment of historic properties, that that would be something that would be exempt from CEQA because by definition, it doesn't have an adverse impact on historic resources. So I worked on both of those. Um, I didn't have faith in the urban, <laughs> urban infill, but uh, it turned out that it, it worked out really well. I thought that it was a little too, um, a little too broad, I guess. Uh, but in reality, it's turned out to be a great streamlining uh, method for, for getting projects built, small projects built in urbanized areas. It's yeah, very satisfying to talk with people who actually make the change. Yeah. And it's very, it's not easy. It's very difficult. But in those days, it was in some ways easier. Uh, now, the State Clearinghouse and the Office of Planning and Resources and the Natural Resources Agency, uh, they do a lot more outreach than we did uh, back in the 90s when we were putting together CEQA guidelines updates. Uh, I did outreach to um, uh, CEQA practitioners uh, around the state, so I, I reached out to CEQA attorneys, uh, some prominent people in uh, who worked on CEQA documents and that sort of stuff uh, for input. But we didn't we didn't hold any public hearings on it or public meetings on it. We didn't have any um, Zoom, <laughs> no Zoom calls, no Zoom calls, you know, none of that sort of stuff. Uh, so the State Clearinghouse, the Office of Planning and Research, Natural Resources Agency would really be commended for the uh, more the greater outreach that they have uh, with these late, latest couple of rounds of uh, CEQA guidelines updates. It hasn't yes. necessarily made them better, but it's <laughs> certainly made you know, makes everybody realize what the issues are and you get a better idea of what the issues are. I think that that is a great point is to a CEQA practitioner, sometimes um, the guidelines make our lives more difficult. Right. Because they don't make logical sense sometimes. Like sometimes it's like things that should be exempt from CEQA aren't, or they're interpreted by a CEQA in a way that I, as a practitioner, wouldn't agree with, but the lead agency, you know, is a lead agency, and so they do their thing. But I've also witnessed that the public is becoming more sophisticated about what CEQA is and understanding what environmental impacts are, and that's to the benefit of us all, really, is, is general awareness and increasing general awareness. And of course, as CEQA practitioners, CEQA is used against to to oppose projects that don't have an environmental impact so it's very controversial and complicated do you ever have a, have you had any experiences where where CEQA was used to oppose a project but it wasn't an environmental issue um yeah I think so yeah I, I, many years ago I've, I worked on a project uh, that, where there was uh urban what do you call it urban decay that was uh being put forward as being an issue and it was pretty clear that it was not an issue. It was, uh, people don't, there are certain aspects of people, certain, uh, you know, people who don't like Walmarts. This happened to be a Walmart that was converting to a super Walmart. So there's already a Walmart there. They were just making it bigger. Uh, and there'd been an argument that this would somehow cause urban decay within the area. But the Walmart was actually located within one of those regional um, power centers. Uh, and so it was, the power center was already there. The Walmart was already there. There really wasn't an, much of an argument that there would be urban decay as a result of putting this this Walmart in. Uh, and it happened to be in a city that that uh, had a great regional draw. You know, there's some cities in, in California that just really punch way above their weight as far as um, the draw that they have for retail. 
Uh, and this was one of those cities they had people coming from well over 100 miles away uh, in rural areas to shop in this particular city. So it was pretty, and their, their downtown was already pretty much blasted uh, because of decisions that the city council had made many years in the past to put in these power centers. Um, so it really wasn't going to have any impact. And we we came in, or ICF came in, uh, to essentially turn a negative declaration into an EIR. Uh, and we called in an uh, urban economics firm uh, who did some uh, economic analysis for us and all that sort of stuff and showed that indeed there, there wasn't going to be any urban decay as a result of this. It wasn't really going to have much of an impact at all as far as uh, physical changes to the environment. And, and sorry, I derailed you, but you were talking about being at the governor's OPR and then, then what happened? Where did you go? What happened? Oh yeah. From there, um, because it was, it's a, an appointed position. Uh, once governor Davis took office uh, and he was a Democrat, uh, Will, Duke Major and Wilson had been Republicans. Uh, and I'm not I'm not a particular particularly uh, political person, so uh, that was one of my lucky things was that somehow I got into the Office of Planning and Research. They let me in uh, without me being this uh, dyed in the wool, really conservative type Republican. I think partly because the Republicans of today don't bear much resemblance to the Republicans of then, um, but for whatever reason, uh, the the Democratic governor coming in um, didn't really feel that I would represent. Uh, the office very well. And so uh, they fired me, uh, which they do in general to everybody who's in the Office of Planning and Research. Uh, but what do you know? It turned out that they'd fired too many people uh, and they didn't have anybody lined up to take the new jobs that would be created by firing everybody in the office. And so they asked me to come back. Uh, and so I said, sure, I'll come back. But, you know, I'm planning on moving into the private sector, try something new. Uh, so I'll come back. And so I was there for about a month. Uh, and then tendered my resignation and moved on. Uh, but during that time, I'd gotten an offer from what was then Jones and Stokes, now ICF, uh, to uh, come on board with them. And I was lucky enough for them to hire me and uh, kind of the rest is history. So it's been, I don't know, 22, 23 years, something like that, that I've been in the private sector. What's, well, to, to some um, young professionals and students and even even veteran professionals, it's hard to get fired. It's a little low. How did you manage manage to uh, take that in stride and and change your life and go work for ICF? Uh, well, I'd already been through a couple of uh, a couple of uh, gubernator gubernatorial um, uh, what would you call it elections. So after each election, the governor, I mean, they could fire you at any time. So I was always, you know, believing every time I went to work every day that potentially they could fire me because um, that's just the way it is and after uh, Duke Magian left and Wilson came in, they were both Republicans, right? But they essentially cleaned out the entire staff of Office of Planning and Research and then just hired back those people that they thought would be, uh, you know, uh, useful. And so I just luckily happened to be one of the people who was hired back that they thought would be useful. And I tried to make myself useful for the next eight years. Um, and so, you know, I was ready to be fired anytime. And so it wasn't a big wasn't a big uh, surprise that they let me go. The big surprise was that they called me back uh, and they wanted me to work for another short period while they found, found somebody else to take my place. That, that sounds so stressful. Was it stressful or was that just the way it was done because it was? Uh, yeah, it was, it was indeed stressful, sure. Cause I, you know, I didn't know where I was gonna go. Uh, I kind of had the job with uh, Jones and Stokes, now ICF lined up, but um, you know, I wasn't, wasn't clear. I'd never done any consulting, and it is quite different than working for an agency. 
Um, and so I didn't, I had no idea whether I'd fit in or not. And it really took me a good year or so before I, I felt even semi-comfortable uh, as a consultant because it was, everything was just so new. Yeah. Can I, I've noticed that on the other end is that there is a big difference going from, you know, public agency or academia to consulting or vice versa. And can you talk about like specifically some of the challenge that you face going from like the public side to the private sector? Um, well, I guess there were two things. Uh, one was that uh, you had to watch budgets, uh, you know, down to the dollar, uh, because you have contracts with clients and the clients expect you to work within your contract and do what you're supposed to do within that contract. It really wasn't that way at the state. I was a deputy director at the Office of Planning and Research, but, you know, I didn't really have to worry about the budget per se, uh, as long as I wasn't, uh, I don't know, expensing diamond uh, Rolexes or something like that, you know, there really wasn't an issue of, of budget. We had a number of people on the staff, you know, and they were paid and all that kind of stuff. You, we did our work, you know, we put in our 40 to 60 hours a week. Um, and, you know, we just did that. And I didn't have to worry about how much, really how much it cost. Uh, but once I got into the private sector, yeah, yeah, then, then suddenly you're watching every penny. Uh, if you're a project manager, you're overseeing a variety of different people working on your environmental impact report or your negative declaration, the initial study. Uh, and so you're kind of hurting them to make sure that they're not going over their budgets for their individual resource areas. Uh, and so the, the money thing was the big thing. Uh, and then the second thing was uh, kind of putting my head around working for uh, development clients. Before I'd always, you know, I'd worked with developers to a certain extent at the Office of Planning and Research because um, you know, it's a part of the governor's office, uh, development industry uh, had the, the ear of the Republican governors. So we'd meet, you know, we'd meet with folks from uh, the California Building Industry Association and such, uh, discuss issues, that kind of jazz. So I had a pretty good idea of what their concerns were and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I, you know, had never really worked for developers. I'd always worked from the other side. I always, you know, when I worked at Kern County, when I'd go to work, I'd think to myself, okay, first thing I sit, tell people is no, uh, because people would come in with the craziest projects. <laughs> we had one gentleman who came in uh, from the uh, Mojave area, literally the Mojave, you know, Mojave, the little town of Mojave out there off of 395, uh, who wanted to put in a fish farm. Uh, he had purchased some surplus property. In fact, I'm not sure he had, had even purchased it yet, but there was surplus property uh, next to an old interchange that Caltrans, I guess, had not built. And so they'd left borrow pits, these, you know, big holes in the ground there. His idea was to fill those with water uh, and grow all kinds of fish. He was going to go salmon and saltwater fish and all this kind of stuff. And so I was just looking at this man. He was Frenchy somebody. I was looking at this man and thinking, you are completely delusional, my friend. Um, <laughs> So what do you do with stuff like that? So, uh, you know, there was almost, there was something like that uh, once a week while I worked there, because I spent a lot of time working the front counter when I was with Kern County. Uh, and so in those days, you know, if somebody came in with a project, my first thought was no, you know, kind of <laughs> explained to me, why should the county approve this? And in writing my staff reports and that sort of thing, I, was, I wasn't negative about it, but that was just the attitude I had because we, we often had people asking for things that were, um, kind of out of the ordinary kind of odd odd things that's very entertaining <laughs> yeah but uh, that was you know that was my experience because uh now i worked for worked for consultants and fortunately uh we didn't work for people who are crazy like like desert frenchy um 
and we worked on projects that were interesting and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that worked out pretty well. And within, you know, it didn't take me long to understand. And I always understood where developers were coming from because my dad was a very small time uh, developer. He, he built uh, individual homes and that kind of thing. Um, so I had, you know, I, I knew what, what problems they faced to a certain extent and all that kind of jazz. But um, yeah, that was a big difference too. Over your 20 years being at ICF, how have you seen development change or how have you seen development proposals change? Uh, I wish I could say I've seen them change a lot, but I don't, I don't think I have. But for the, for the most part, the, the evolutionary change that we've seen in development proposals is that they get better and better as far as the environment goes. Uh, that you see projects that have, you know, gradually uh, becoming more environmentally friendly where the developer will have already reached out to the Department of Fish and Wildlife or the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers if they've got, uh, you know, threatened endangered species or wetlands on the site. And so uh, we see a lot of developers who are more savvy than they used to be. Uh, but nonetheless, we still see kind of projects that are problematic. But uh, I think that's that's the main thing is that, you know, things have changed. Uh, we're also seeing, at least we're working on, we're also seeing a lot of infill projects still seeing infill projects. And so that's interesting. And then in the Bay Area, we're seeing, we're working on some, you know, big projects like, uh, you know, office campuses and, and that kind of stuff. So we're kind of seeing some of the South Bay communities uh, in some ways redevelop and re reinvent themselves, but from the point of view of putting in more jobs uh, and not necessarily putting in more housing. So that's been kind of a change too. I had been thinking uh, back from my days with uh, Wilson administration and growth management, all that kind of jazz, uh, where we that we would somehow be putting in more affordable housing in the Bay Area. I had my hopes, but uh, it hasn't worked out that way. Yes, that is a, a big issue, as we all know, in California. And, you know, something as you're talking about all this, you know, development and the environmental policy, I'm wondering your perspective and opinion on California regulation. As when it comes to development, you know, there's a lot of controversy, well, I shouldn't say controversy, but strong opinions that California is overregulated and that it's too hard to get development move forward here and too hard to get projects approved. And, you know, on the flip side, there's a lot of environmental protection to keep the environment functioning and to keep our resources safe. So it's kind of wondering your opinion on, on what it does for development, the environmental policies. Yeah. Um... I'm pretty gung-ho on most of California's environmental policies. I think they're good for the environment. I think they keep California, um, to the extent that it is, keep California healthy. Uh, you know, California has been traditionally one of the fastest growing states. Uh, when I was a kid, I forgot what our population was, like 15 million or something. Now it's, what, 35? Uh, so it's, it's hugely increased. Uh, you can look at uh, Los Angeles when I was a kid back in the 60s, uh, the one or two times we visited, because we're Northern Californians, we don't visit LA. Um, the one or two times we visited, oh God, our eyes were burning and you could hardly see across the street from all the smog. Well, now LA is what, one and a half, two times the, the population that it was then in the LA and Riverside and San Bernardino areas. Um, and yet the air quality is somewhat better. Uh, so environmental laws, environmental regulations have really helped the state a lot. Uh, they've helped us cope with the incredible growth that we've seen. Uh, one of the things that, that doesn't come up, I think, in the discussion of why development is so expensive, or a couple of things, are land costs. California land costs are just, oh, you know, just off the, are just record. 
they're huge. And that's a big part of it. Someone comes in, wants to develop, well, right off the, the bat, they've got this very expensive property that they're buying and that they want to now develop. So that's a big thing. And then I think that the effect of Prop 13, Proposition 13 from what, 1978 is still with us. Um, it essentially uh, gutted the abilities of cities and counties to spread the cost of development over the entire community. And in some ways, it placed a lot of the development costs on the individual developments. So if you're putting in roads, well, you're going to have to pay to put in those roads. Uh, in the old days, you didn't necessarily do that. You, you, the city would put in the roads and your tax rate would be higher. But nonetheless, all of that was done by the city. Uh, they put in the curbs, gutters and sidewalks. They, you know, there was plenty of money for libraries and uh, high schools. In high school, you actually, during gym class, you would actually undress dress, do gym, uh, undress again, take a shower with towels that were provided by the, the school, and then go on to your next class, which kids don't do anymore. Um, there were all kinds of things that there was money for then that we don't have money for now. And many of those things relate back to the impact fees that we now see these huge impact fees, per unit impact fees, that we now see being levied on, uh, on development projects. Impact fees were practically non-existent before 1978. Uh, and so I think that's had a big, the Prop 13 has had a big influence on the cost of housing um, in California. Because when you get into the urban areas, uh, they're the ones who tend to charge the most uh, for their impact fees. Uh, some, yeah. some areas it was $150,000 a unit. I mean, it, in some places it's just astronomically high. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I, I appreciate that. And as I you know, mentioned before you recorded, I'm, I'm not a technical person. So I thank you for educating me on this. And, and I think, you know, when you started to talk about this in the example of LA, I think that's so important because when we don't see it because we have been taking care of our environment and we have access to clean air and quality drinking water, we don't think about all the work that's gone into keeping that healthy. Right. And so we don't want to get to a point where we have to learn the hard way, but I, I do think it's important. It's like we don't see it, so we don't understand the cost of keeping it that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, you want to live in a quality environment. I've uh, visited third world countries back in the 70s and 80s, um, and you can see a huge difference. You can see a difference in the infrastructure, the quality of the infrastructure, you know, whether infrastructure is there or not is what I mean by infrastructure, uh, the, the lack of infrastructure, uh, the quality of the infrastructure that's there, um, the quality of the environment in those areas. I mean, they look fine, but they don't have a wastewater treatment plant. What do you know? They're dumping raw sewage into the Pacific Ocean. Um, and so I probably shouldn't have eaten that, um, I probably shouldn't have eaten those <laughs> mussels. Because uh, yeah. I took them down with hepatitis, so you know, so the the and my brother actually did come down with hepatitis. Um, so it it's one of those things that, like you say, we don't necessarily notice, but it's important for us to finance because that's what that's what keeps us healthy and that's what keeps California livable. Yeah, we we have a an example of that in San Diego where um, people were really upset. Well, my my friends are are upset that they get tickets when they're parked in the street sweeping zone mm. and they don't understand why street sweeping is so important. They think it's just beautification. But when I explain that California has stormwater quality regulations and the reason why 
the things that come off your car, like zinc from your tires, heavy metal mm -hmm. contamination, oil and gas and grease from your car, and that goes straight to the roads and it accumulates in places like San Diego where it doesn't rain. And then when it rains, that urban runoff goes down the streets and into the drains. So all those cigarette butts, all the litter trash and the contamination goes straight into the drains. And that's where the surfers surf, hence the hepatitis C discussion that we have. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have a third world country to have um, water contamination. We're right. very developed and very progressive environmental policies here in California. And yet we can still through through um, general unawareness or um, not wanting to comply. We've got these problems that have a that have a true impact. Our, our homeless population in San Diego is spe specific to the beach community that I live in. We didn't provide them appropriate bathrooms hmm. or take them to appropriate shelters. And that contributed to a really, really bad hepatitis outbreak in our community because huh. of the human remains, if you will, not dead remains, but right. <laughs> things that go in ways. And waste. part of that too, sorry, just to add on another part of that was an environmental policy was the plastic bag ban. And so plastic bags had been being used to clean up the waste on the street. And when that got banned, it was like an unanticipated consequence of that. So sorry, Laurel, go ahead. I, no, exactly. Like those are the practical examples that I see in in every human's life, regardless if you're a CEQA practitioner or a land use planner, it's it's like there are reasons why such very dense communities have such strict environmental laws. You, you simply mm -hmm. have so many human beings doing so many things. We have to keep it orderly. And and I work in Imperial Valley where the density huh. is extremely low. But right. you know, I'll go back to San Diego where the density is high, and I can just see the difference. Just mm -hmm. in, in my opinion. Um, as I grow and I develop and I learn about the environmental profession itself, I, I keep coming back to the density as the as the cause. What do you think is one of the biggest um, contributors, positive or negative, to environmental quality, or actually, I should say, public health related to the environment? What do you think is the the issue that we should all be focused on addressing to improve our quality of life? Boy, that's a good, that's a difficult one. It really depends on where you are in California. Uh, if you're in some of the rural areas, uh, we haven't talked about water at all, but if you're in some of the rural areas, clean water is a big deal. Uh, in the Central Valley, for example, there are innumerable small um, communities that have uh, really bad water systems uh, because they tend to be low-income communities. Uh, they never had a good water system uh, even if they did have a water system, they didn't have a means of maintaining it, paying to maintain it. I may not have had a mutual water district or a community services district or whatever is necessary in order to collect money from people uh, to pay somebody to maintain the water system. And so um, that's a huge problem. So I would say that water quality, if you're in the Central Valley, uh, water quality is a huge thing, as well as the availability of water to farmers. Uh, they've been uh, overdrafting the, the aquifers in the Central Valley for decades. Uh, and now with the droughts, uh, it's really kind of coming home to roost because we're having a subsidence and all that kind of gens. So it kind of depends on, on where you are. Um, in the urban areas, uh, it's probably, I always get back to uh, transit, which seems odd. Um, but we need to cut down on how much we drive. We really do need to cut down on our vehicle miles traveled because how much we drive, the number of vehicle miles that we travel every year 
directly relate, even if we're an electric car or hybrid, directly relate to the production of greenhouse gases. So if we're going to contain greenhouse gases in California, we need to start driving less. Um, walk, to the walk to the market, ride a bike to work, take transit here and there. Um, but our options are relatively limited, except in a couple of our urban areas. Um, they're relatively limited because in most places, Sacramento, for example, um, Fresno, uh, public transit is pretty much a joke as far as the bus systems go. Uh, they try to do what they can, but they don't have enough money to really do it. Uh, and so you end up with these um, kind of sprawling communities Fresno, Sacramento, Bakersfield, uh, that don't have options for people. And so they're racking up all this mileage. Uh, you don't really think of it, uh, but you're racking up all this mileage every year that's contributing to our climate change problem. Uh, the, it's estimated that um, vehicles produce something like 40% of California's greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to try and reduce our driving. So that's kind of an odd off the wall thing, but I think. Um, you know, environmental quality directly relates back in the urbanized areas, particularly directly relates back to how much we drive. And if we can in, stop driving as much, things might be better from greenhouse gas perspective. It sounds to me like you're like, I know what the answer to this question is going to be. But um, so you mentioned water quality, water availability and transit. Whose responsibility is it to make this change? Who do we need to call action and attention to to get this work done? Uh, all of us. Yeah. It's all of us, really. Um, you know, it's the policymakers in Sacramento, it's the policymakers at the local level. Um, and the big thing that's needed is simply money. That's what it comes down to is money. Uh, and so it comes down to each of us as well, uh, because uh, over the years, people have been complacent about how things are, are financed. Uh, after Prop 13, Prop 13 was originally intended to um, reduce commercial property taxes. It was funded and uh, sponsored by uh, commercial interests. Uh, but in order to sell it, they decided, well, let's use the, the good old old lady approach, uh, the old lady who's losing her home. And so it was amended or it was changed before it got on the ballot uh, to also reduce residential property taxes. And the idea was they'd trot out these old ladies who would say, oh yeah, you know, my property taxes are going up every year and it's become so burdensome that I'm going to lose my home. And so what do you know? People voted for Prop 13. It passed. And yeah, it saved the little old lady. But at the same time, it also uh, took away a lot of the funding that cities and counties could be using to put in bike paths or um, pay for transit uh, because it hit every taxing uh, entity in the state. Uh, by reducing their ability, well, not every, but every taxing in, in, entity in the state that relied on property taxes, um, it essentially cut their property tax revenues by, I think it was two thirds. Uh, so it was a tremendous cut. And the, it was also sold on the idea of being of uh, government being inefficient and all that sort of stuff, which wasn't particularly true. Government is no, no less efficient than private sector, if, if truth be known. There's always going to be a little bit of waste, no matter what, what you do. Uh, nothing is perfect. Uh, so it was sold on that those grounds too. And so we end up uh, slowly descending, you know, into this lack of infrastructure and old infrastructure and no money to pay for transit or libraries being open, uh, you know, on during working hours, seven days a week, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, we don't really notice it. So it's all of us too. 
being willing to pay a little bit more into the you know the the community kitty uh, in order to cover some cover some of these costs because uh, transit's not going to is never going to pay for itself and we just have to recognize that it's one of those public goods that needs to be paid for. I think so that's, that's the those, way I look at it. yeah. That, thank you for sharing that. That's I know. I think you know we're, we love like asking you these questions as an expert and having all this varied experience and hearing your perspective and. It's so spot on what you just said, because it's the, the direct versus indirect costs. And so when people see the direct costs that coming out of their, you know, paychecks, whatever, like, oh, this is my money. This is my hard earned money. Like yeah. it's going to cost you at some point. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. just like now we can stay ahead of it instead of being more reactive down the road. But um, yeah, I think uh, that's so important. Like you said, we all have to do our part. Yeah, one thing pay, I for back, pay now uh, or pay later. Uh, yeah, sorry, yeah, exactly. One example that I have is from my travels in Europe. Um, I've gone to Northern Italy. I've been lucky enough to go to Northern Italy, I guess it's three times now, three times now to hike in the Dolomites. Beautiful Alpine, basically Italy's Alps uh, on the border of Austria, Northern edge of Austria and, and Italy. Um, you can go anywhere. You can practically go to any of the trailheads in the Dolomites from the little city of Bolzano on the bus. Um, and although granted, I'm not I'm not commuting every day to work or that sort of stuff. Uh, when I would go hiking from Bolsano in the Dolomites, I would take a bus, and the buses ran on very uh, very good schedules. There were numerous buses going to the trailheads, uh, and so it was almost as if I was going to work because I would catch a bus that I knew would get me to the trailhead at a particular time, and then I would have to be ready, done with my hike, um, to catch the return bus uh, because I wanted to get back in time to. Uh, buy myself a beer and uh, a gelato and I guess I didn't really mix them but a beer <laughs> and a gelato and chill out before going out for dinner um, but see that that city and that province Alto Adige province of Italy thought it important to have this available they have a lot of tourists during the summer uh, they also have people who live in one part of the the province and work in these resort areas uh, who commute, oftentimes I'd be on a bus at, I don't know, 6.15 or whenever the first bus was, and there'd be people there who obviously were not tourists. They were going uh, going to work. You know, they were heading off, they were maids or whatever, uh, but they were heading off to work. So it didn't carry a lot of a lot of people like that when I was riding the bus, but again, it was pretty early in the morning. Uh, but that Thank pointed you. out to me that even in Italy, a place like that, we don't normally think of Italy being um, advanced beyond the United States, but even there, uh, this particular province has figured out some way of providing this service, uh, both to me as a tourist, as a hiker, and to its locals, so they can get to work even though they live in Bolsano or Murano or wherever it is. Um, also, they, they had regional trains, um, and you could take a regional train. You could buy a ticket there for about 30 euros. It was good at the time. It was good for like a week. You could ride all the regional trains, which would be, you could go 100 miles on the regional train for God's sake, with this ticket. Uh, and then you could go 100 miles back if you wanted mm -hmm. to. You could ride the train every day for a week if you wanted, all over the province. Uh, and you could take the buses for this on the same card. Uh, and Bolsano is down in kind of a valley surrounded by uh, these beautiful hillsides with wineries or uh, vineyards on them. Uh, and then above it, you know, there's kind of these higher plateaus with little villages. Uh, they have um, uh, trams that run up from Bolsano up to the little village uh, on, I guess there's three of them, three little villages. Those were covered by the card too. So mm -hmm. 
and and I would take the tram a couple times. I took the tram really early in the morning again because I wanted to get in a hike. Um, and here were again maids and you know um, people who might be gardeners or whatever people going to work, going to work from Bolsano up to this higher class area up up on the up on the plateaus. Uh, again, you know they had a card. They walked on and beep. You know, so they didn't have a one week card, but they obviously yeah. had a card. You know, a card that they had bought uh, for transit too. I so had a similar experience. Yes, that's what was going on. I was like, it can yeah. be done. I had a similar experience in Puerto Vallarta where it was like twenty five cents to get on the bus, and I could go mm -hmm. to all all the things and really enjoy it. And you know, being in London, I feel like I have ultimate freedom with my little Got oyster, your oyster card. card. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. the oyster card. You could just go anywhere. Well. Right. Um, it's really something to think about. So I encourage the the young professionals listening to this to think of, about new ways of transportation, redesigning our communities to afford us more freedom. You know, because I think the more freedom that we might have in our transit and options for varying levels of affordability, the more people will be engaged in the community and the more people that are engaged in the community the more awareness there is where there's like potholes and we need that need to be fixed or this building needs to be renovated or like just more ideas and i i think that that when we don't use public transportation and we don't travel and we don't spread our awareness it's out of sight out of mind i don't see mm -hmm. it therefore therefore i'm going to go to the board of supervisors and oppose this project that i know nothing about because <laughs> because it's going to affect my bubble like i i think right. um i would encourage everyone to go out and like listen to public hearings and, and enjoy your public transportation as you go to those public hearings and just like experience what it feels like to be in, a, in an urban metropolis mobility, uh, different modes of mobility around. And I think you might be excited to see what you find. Like it's, we don't need to get in our cars and do everything in our cars. Like you can think a little creatively, make space in your day to get somewhere new from a different mode of transportation. But that said, like I could, I also want to just take the time to make a shout out. There's a documentary on Netflix about the Italy geology of the Dolomites, and oh. it blew my mind. Wow. It is so cool because they, they explain the plate tectonics in the region, and they took soil samples from this volcano or this volcano, and they're like, why does this have this type of rock, and this has this type of rock? Right. It must be from this weird stuff, and it's just... I highly recommend it for those of you that can't make it to Italy, watch <laughs> the documentary about the geology because it's just, it's fascinating. But I think, I think we're at our time and it's time for oh, Jessa's okay. rapid five, wrap up rapid five. Okay. So you're going to okay. ask me five questions or something? Or, yes. Okay. And you, first thing that comes to mind. So what is your favorite daily habit? Uh, it's probably uh, taking my urban hike. Yay. Yeah. What are three things that you would bring to a deserted island? Oh boy, that's tough. Um, my wife is out of out of earshot, but I would say number one would be my wife. Um, and take to a deserted island. Uh probably <laughs> I get to take anything, so I would take a boat so we could leave. Um and then I would probably take my trusty uh MSR stove so that I could uh we could have coffee and that sort of stuff. There Assuming that the deserted island has coffee beans. <laughs> um, okay, what is your what is your favorite environmental policy? My favorite environmental policy. Wow. Um, I don't think I really have one. 
Uh, I, I like the uh, Endangered Species Act. I've, mm. I've always liked that one, I guess. So environmental policies relating to, um, you know, ensuring that we don't kill off all the other species on Earth. Uh, I think that's a good one. It's a good one. That'd be my favorite. All right. Your favorite flora or favorite fauna? Yeah, my favorite flora would be columbines. I like columbines. Uh, you see them a lot in Colorado. I do a lot of hiking, at least the last few years, I've been doing a lot of hiking in the Sierras, and you occasionally see them here and there in the high Sierras, too. Uh, beautiful little flowers. Uh, so columbines. Fauna, um, that's a hard one because I really like bears. I like uh, black bears, um, and I also, but I also like um, rodents. I like the little golden mantle ground squirrels and the marmots and all those guys, too. So. I guess it would have to be mammals. Okay. Just in general. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a lover of crocodiles and alligators. They can they can go extinct as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so uh, I was gonna mammals. say, but what if they're endangered? Um yeah, even if they're endangered, they they're on their own as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> All right. Little animals, I, I love those. <laughs> and um finish this sentence. Wouldn't it be cool if yeah, wouldn't it be cool if, uh, I guess, as you say, everybody understood the uh, externalities and internalities of um, our taxation system and the sorts of things that, that we can afford, the sorts of things that we can't afford, and that uh, everyone could agree on a good set, a good set of um, policies and objectives and how to get there. That will never happen, but if everybody could agree, that would be nice. It would be cool. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Sure. Yeah. yeah, it's my pleasure. And um, we hope to have you back again, where we can talk about maybe how water quality, droughts, and transit have changed over time. Maybe our future guests are on the way to solving that problem. But thank you so, so much for sharing. Yeah, hope sharing your expertise. And we appreciate your time on behalf of AEP. OK, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank All you. Right. Till next time, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As a new podcast, it really helps us if you share with friends and colleagues that may enjoy this podcast as well. And please subscribe or follow the podcast to be alerted for new episodes. Also, if you want to submit a shout out, please send a voice memo under a minute, uh, ideally to podcast with an S at C-A-L-I-F aep.org. Again, that's podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P.org or any feedback that you'd like to share. We love feedback. Thank you.